Welcome to Business Done Differently, where baseball team owner turned showman Jesse Cole speaks with successful entrepreneurs who stand out in business and in life by thinking differently and challenging the status quo. We believe whatever is normal, do the exact opposite, and that normal gets normal results. If you want to stand out and be different, this one's for you. I am absolutely fired up today to have the one and only Ken Blanchard on the show. Ken has published over 60 books, including massive hits like The Secret, One Hit Manager, Gung Ho. But his books, The Raving Fans, Whale Done, Simple Truths of Service, which we simply just call Johnny the Bagger here, have been arguably the most impactful books on my entrepreneurship journey and the fans first team here. Ken has been a mentor from afar, and I am so thrilled to connect with you and share your wisdom with my listeners. Ken, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jesse. It's just a joy to be with you because I I think this whole country is built on entrepreneurs, you know, and I hate when people pick on business people because we create jobs. Mm. And for you to go from nothing to pulling this ball club together and selling out and all, that's just great. And it's because of your theme about customers first. Yes, 100%. And I'll tell you, I want to share a little bit our journey because I believe you live your brand. And, you know, I sent you a letter about three years ago, just thanking you for the impact that you started to make on our company. And you fired back a handwritten letter with a couple extra books. And I was just blown away. Very few people write back with another handwritten letter. And then a few years later, after we got out of the airbed and started having success, I sent you another thank you letter and you called me. Ken, I remember vividly, I was driving home and I get this call from California. I was like, I'll answer it. And he goes, Jesse, it's Ken Blanchard. And I think there's so much to say about you're actually living what you share with the world. And I just want to thank you for that. And make sure the listeners know it's not just saying what you believe in. It's actually living it. Yeah, I think that's important, you know. And one of the things I've really gotten into lately is uh, we developed a 12-step Egos Anonymous program. Because I think the thing that keeps people from being real with others is they get their ego in the way, you know, either with false pride when they have a more than philosophy where they think they're brighter than and all, or they have a less than where they have self-doubt and fear. A lot of people wouldn't think that's an ego problem, yet it really is. And the reason I think the ego is the biggest addiction, the people who have self-doubt and fear, what do they do? They go to outside agents like alcohol and sex and drugs and all to build themselves up. But it's interesting about the false pride types, which everybody says, yeah, I know their ego. But Thomas Harris wrote a book years ago called I'm Okay, You're Okay. And he said, the worst life position is I'm okay, you're not, which is false pride. And he said, all the research shows that people who act like I'm okay, you're not okay, are covering up not okay feelings about themselves. And I've found that in working with managers. You know, when I find a manager who's considered a problem and get to know them, they're scared little kids inside. So the first thing I have to do is try to help them realize that God didn't make any junk, that they're absolutely beautiful, and they don't have all the strengths in the world, but they can gather people around them that fill their weaknesses as a team. And so it's kind of fascinating. Oh, wow, that's brilliant. You know, Ken, I think (laughs) your body of work shares so much of your beliefs, but I personally don't know your story. And I think it's really interesting to someone that rises up and makes such an impact on millions of people. Me personally, I just want to impact the world. And I'm wondering, before we get into this amazing customer experience and employee experience, tell us your story. How did you 
become this person putting out great pieces of work over and over and over again? Well, it's really interesting because my life story is interesting because to think that you never had any bumps along the way is really <laughs> crazy. I, I went to Cornell and I was running a dormitory, a freshman dormitory when I was a junior and senior to pay for school as a dorm counselor, you know, and all. And I thought, what I want to be is I want to be a dean of students, you know. So uh, I said, how do I do that? So well, you better get a master's degree. And so I said, well, how am I going to do that? Because I had a gentleman 75 average at best. And so I applied to a bunch of schools and couldn't get in. But one of our deans had gotten a master's degree at Colgate in a small program they had over there. And he convinced them to provisionally accept me into this master's degree program in education. So I went over there and I had been a government major at Cornell, which was really kind of interesting. And I got in these education courses and they were so boring. I was sitting at the bar at the Colgate Inn saying, I can't believe I'm going to be here for two years. The way God works, sitting next to me was a young sociology professor who had just come and his wife was backpacking up. He had just finished his doctor's degree at Illinois. And I was telling him my story. He said, well, why don't you come and major with me? I said, well, what's sociology? He said, we study people and leadership and things. Oh, I said, that's interesting. So he got me into his program. So I get a master's in sociology. And so I said, okay, I'm ready to be a dean. They said, well, you better get a doctor's degree. I said, doctor's degree? You got to be kidding me. How am I going to get a doctor's degree? And I said, well, you need one. So I applied a bunch, couldn't get in. But I had taken a course one time in the summer before I went to the master's degree program from a guy who headed up an educational leadership program at Cornell. And I called him and I said, you know, Dr. McCarty, I said, could you get me provisionally accepted into your doctoral program? He said, why not? And so to me, graduate education is more endurance than is intelligence. The thing that got me through the doctoral program is I played competitive sports. I was a basketball player, and tennis player, because you get hit a lot and you have to decide whether you're going to get up. <laughs> and so I just drove my legs and all. And I said, OK, now I'm ready to be a dean, you know. And I went to their big national convention, had a great interviews at Dartmouth, Wesleyan, Northern Illinois, and some other. And they all were going to invite me to campus. See? And so I never heard from any of them. So I called this guy at Dartmouth who I had gone out and drank with. I said, John, you were going to invite me to campus, but I never heard from you. And he said, Ken, I feel bad. I should have called you, but you got two terrible recommendations in your placement file. This is the years when you would ask people to write recs, but you couldn't look at your placement file. And I said, from whom? He said, the dean of students and the associate dean. I said, oh, that's very helpful. I said, what did the dean say? He said, Ken Blanchard's a wonderful guy. He said, but don't let him near the faculty. He's got no academic interest. And I said, God, that's really great. I took a course from him. We called it Sleeping with Stan. It was terrible. See? <laughs> and I said, what did the associate dean say? He said, Ken Blanchard's a wonderful guy, not particularly intelligent, but a wonderful guy. So I'm dead, see. So I go back to the bar, and <laughs> there's a guy there who's getting a doctor's degree in organizational behavior, and he had been at Harvard Business School, and I had met him before, and I told my plight. He said, well, a guy who was an associate dean at Harvard Business School just went to be president of Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. Why don't you write him and tell him your situation? So I wrote Vern Ault, and he sent my credentials to the dean of the business school, and I get a call from Harry Everts. And he said, Ken, you got a crazy background, but I'm looking for crazy people because he thought it was stupid that we taught business administration, educational administration, hospital administration. He said, why don't we study, get a graduate program in administration and then have a course on institutional settings? So I went initially as assistant to him. And so when I got there, he said, Ken, I want you to teach a course. And I had never thought about teaching because my faculty told me, 
that my writing wasn't academic enough. And I found out later you could understand it, but it was confusing to them because I, <laughs> I talked really plain language, you know. And he said, well, I don't care about that. And Paul Hersey had just arrived as chairman of the management department. He put me in Hersey's department to teach a course. After two weeks, I come home and I said to my wife, Margie, I said, boy, this is what I ought to do is be a teacher. I said, this is really great. And she said, yeah, but what about the writing? I said, we'll figure something out. And so I had heard that Hersey taught a great course in leadership. And so I came up to him in December 1966 and said, Paul, do you mind if I sit in your course next semester? He said, nobody audits my course. If you want to take it for credit, you're welcome. And he walked away. And I thought, that's really something. I had a doctor's degree and he didn't. And he's making me take his course. So I talked to Margie and she said, well, is he any good? I said, he's supposed to be great. She said, well, get your ego out of the way and take his course. So I went and signed up and I wrote all the papers. And in June 67, Hersey comes into my office and he said, Ken, he said, I've been teaching leadership for 10 years. I think I'm better than anybody. But he said, I'm having trouble writing. You know, he said, it's not my real thing. And he said, they want me to write a textbook. But I've been looking for a good writer like you who understands the field. I had done my doctoral dissertation on Fred Fiedler, who was the first situational leadership guy. And he said, would you write a book with me? And I said, we ought to be a great team. You know, <laughs> I'm not supposed to write and you're having trouble with it. So let's do it. So we wrote a book called Management of Organizational Behavior, Utilizing Human Resource. It was great because the students loved it because Paul and I didn't know any big words, you know. <laughs> and so I went to the dean and I said, I quit as an administrator because I got a book. I'm going to be a faculty member. And he said, you can't quit. I said, why not? He says, because I was going to fire you. I said, fire me? He said, yeah, because you're a lousy administrator. And so we, which I was. And so it was a photo finish between him firing me and all. And so I ended up staying. And then a bunch of my buddies went to the University of Massachusetts, yeah. to the School of Education. They had a Dwight Allen had come there. It was a really great, innovative educator. And, and so they said, you ought to come here. So I switched and went to UMass in the School of Ed. And taught there and all. In uh, 1976, I got full professor with tenure early, you know, because I was out publishing people and we were doing all kinds of stuff, Hersey and I. And, and so I went on a one-year sabbatical leave to San Diego. And after several months, so I was going to write another edition to the, the book that Paul and I were writing. And then we were writing a book called The Family Game, A Situational Approach to Effective Parenting. And so after a couple of months, my wife said, we're really going to go back to Massachusetts. You know, <laughs> summer in Massachusetts is two weeks of bad skating. And I'm so, from Massachusetts originally. I know all about Massachusetts. I, I know. So that was 42 years ago. And we ended up out here and ran into a group called the Young Presidents Organization, YPO. You have to become president before you're 40 years old. And I did some sessions for them and they adopted me and said, you're one of the greatest presenters we've had, you know, what are you going to do at the end of the year? We said, we're going back to the university. He said, no, you're not. You're going to start your own company. We said, how are we going to do that? We can't even balance our own checkbook. Yeah. And they said, we'll help you. And five presidents volunteered to be our advisory board, one from Oregon, one from San Diego, one from Mexico, one from Pennsylvania, one from Illinois. And they flew out and helped us set up the company. And this coming year, this year, we're going to be celebrating the 40th anniversary of our company, which is really kind of amazing. But I went on pretty long to tell you the story. But people tell me, what does it take to be successful? Well, you got to keep your head up and look for opportunities. And if somebody hits you, just bob and weave and go on. And in 1980, we're invited to a cocktail party 
by Adelaide Brie, who wrote uh, Visualizations, directing the movies of your mind, one of the first people on self-curing yourself of cancer. She had a party of authors in town. And since I had this textbook, I qualified. So I go there and Spencer Johnson was there. Mm -hmm. And my wife, Margie, met him. And Spencer had wrote children's books, this whole series called Value Tales, the value of courage, the story of Jackie Robinson, the value of determination, the story of Helen Keller, the value of honesty, the story of Abe Lincoln. So Margie hand carried him over to me and said, you guys should write a children's book for managers. They won't read anything else. And so Spencer was working on a one-minute scolding with a psychiatrist on disciplining kids. And I invited him to a seminar I was doing the next week, and he sat in the back and laughed, came running up at the end of the day, said, forget parenting, let's do the one-minute manager. And so because he was a children's book writer and I'm a storyteller, we decided to write a parable about a young man searching for and we met the second week in November. We had a draft of that book by the time we were going to the Rose Bowl at the end of December. It wow. kind of wrote us. And we gave a draft to people to read, and they loved it. So I said, Spencer, we got to go to New York and get a contract. He says, no way. <clears throat> he said, they'll beat us up and take all the money because they don't know who we are. Yeah. You know. And he said, let's self-publish it. And we did. And a friend of mine was the head, Dick Gavin, was the head of the National Restaurant Association, their big convention. And he let us give a keynote speech. We sold 1,500 copies of the One Minute Manager at the back of the at the room. <laughs> and we sold 20,000 copies with no advertising, just from, you know, clients that I had and all. And so when we went to New York, we had a track record. We had endorsements and all. And we were on the Today Show in 1982, Labor Day, went on the bestseller list the next week and never left for two or three years. And so that's went crazy, you know. And it helped us build our company. And also, that's kind of a fairy tale story. But I said to all of your watchers, you know, don't let people discourage you and all. Just bob and weave and until you finally find out something that you're confused about between work and play. You know, people ask me, I'm just going to be this year, Jesse, celebrating the 59th anniversary of my 21st birthday. And people say, when are you going to retire? <laughs> and I said, when they take me up, you know, I mean, because why would you retire? I wrote a book, Refire, yes. you know, make the rest of your life the best of your life. And so you got to keep on going. <laughs> Sounds like you and your wife refired. Oh, constantly. I mean, we're living with so much passion. And, you know, I think the great thing from what you just shared is, you know, you talk about storytelling a little bit, but really it was the simplifying. I think what you were able to do, you, said you worked with a children's author into your ideas and put into one. And that woman and manager now sold millions of copies. And, yeah. you know, before we get into really the experience and the customer experience, like that's what resonated with me. Every speech that I give, Ken, I reference raving fans because I can tell yes. the stories in the book because it's so simple. I think a great yeah. point is just the simplifying. Yeah. Why doesn't everybody do that? I mean, you made it so easy and that's why you're having success. Every book, it's like I can read it in one day and I get the message. Yeah. Well, let me tell you the background of raving fans. I mentioned to the Young Presidents Organization, Sheldon Bowles was a YPOer from Winnipeg in Canada, see? And I had met him and all. And so we were doing a, a university one time, one of the where they bring a lot of these presidents. And I was on the program and Sheldon came and he said, Ken, I wrote a draft of a book that I'd like us to co-author called Raving Fans, see? And the reason he did that is Sheldon was an entrepreneur and he was doing a certain thing. And then 
he started asking people, if you didn't have to go to a gas station, would you go to one? And they said, no, we wouldn't. Well, what do you want from a gas station? He said, we want quick service at a reasonable price from a friendly environment. And so he got this idea for what he called Domo Gas, you know, in Canada. And he thought of the Indianapolis 500 races where they have the pit stop, you know, and the car pulls in there. These people race for the car and all. So he dressed these people up in red jumpsuits, you know, and we kind of tell the story in the book. And somebody would drive in there and three people would race for their car. One would be cleaning the outside and all. Somebody would be pumping gas and somebody would ask him to open the window and give him a cup of coffee and a, and a donut or something and say, could you step out and I'll dust bust your car, you know. And people just started saying, you got to go to this Domo Gas. I mean, it's crazy because he said raving fans are people who are so excited about what you do that they want to brag about you and they become part of your sales force. Mm -hmm. And so I'm walking up to our room that night and he had given me this draft and I said, wow, what do you tell a guy? I mean, how good a writer could this guy be? And I get up and I start reading it and I said, Margie, this is unbelievable. He turned out he was a journalist when he was young. So together with what he came up with and integrating with my ideas, we wrote Raving Fans, but the essence of it was in Sheldon's story. Yes. So it's amazing. That's what I try to do is find people with a story yes. that needs to be told. And how can I help them story? Like I wrote a book with Colleen Barrett, you yes. know, became Leave president of Southwest. Yeah. After Herb decided, you know, Herb just died. I don't know if you knew that. Yes. Herb Keller yes. was really sad. What a fabulous guy. Mm. But I had to meet her because, you know, she started as his executive secretary in 1967. Yeah. And he just brought her up and then she put her in charge of customer service. And then when he wanted to step down, he said, Colleen, you be president, you know, and she was unbelievable. Yeah. It's fascinating because obviously everything since we read Raving Fans has really changed our mindset. Envision that <clears throat> perfect experience for the customer from the first time yes. they see you to when they leave, yeah. because that last yes. impression leaves a lasting impression. And coming to a Bananas Games, we always share, we have a pep band outside. We have our banana-shaped yeah. tickets that are scratch and stiff like bananas. We have a senior citizen yeah. dance team called the Banana Nanas dancing. I mean, it's yeah. a whole circus as you come into yes. our ballpark. And I'm just so fascinated on some of these stories that you've shared, like Johnny the Bagger. We have everyone on yeah. our staff read that. Now, did they just come to you and then you kind of put that together? Like, it's just such a simple concept. Take everything yeah. in your business and make it amazing. Well, uh, Barbara Glanz, who I wrote that book with, yeah. she was given a session for a big grocery chain. And in that session, she had all the frontline employees. She said, now go home tonight and think about how you can make a difference for your customer. Because every one of you, I don't care what your job is, you could make a difference for your customer. And so Johnny was a kid with a, you know, kind of a learning disability and all. And he, he went home and he told his father that this woman came and he was a bagger. How could I make a difference? You know, she said, we all can make a difference. So he and his dad started to talk and Johnny used to love to collect sayings. And so his father said, well, this would be a great idea, they thought. And so they took one of his sayings a day and made, you know, 150, 200 copies of it. And Johnny would sign the back of it and put it in a paper bag. And when he would finish bagging somebody's groceries, he'd reach in and say, I'd love to have you have my saying for the day. And it was unbelievable. In fact, the manager of the store called me and said, 
you know, you won't believe what Johnny's done into our store. You know, the other day I'm out there and Johnny's line is way back. And I'm trying to get, say, go in other lines and all. And people said, no, I'm not going to get it. I want to get Johnny's, you know, <laughs> quote saying for the day, you know. And it just wow. shows you that if every human being does it, they can make a difference. And what you did really, too, you and your wife, is you followed the first secret of raving fans, which is, you need to first decide what kind of experience you want your people to have. Most people say, well, why don't you ask your customers first? Well, you ought to have a vision of it. So the first one is to really kind of decide what you want them to do. And then the second one is now ask the customers, okay, based on what we're doing, what are we missing? What else would you want? And then you can see where that fits in and you can add their ideas. So mm -hmm. we call that discover the step. Yeah. And then the last one is to deliver, which is to create it. And that's why you're doing so well. I mean, if, if everybody would realize that, they would just be able to kill the customers, you know? Yeah. Because the customers would become, what, raving fans of yours. 100%. You know, I think that is so brilliant. And you say, you know, what Henry Ford said many years ago, if I asked people what they wanted, they'd say faster horses. Or <laughs> yeah. you know, I'll give the customers a car of any color they want, as long as it's black. You know, those are the two yeah. of his famous quotes. Yeah. We realized what the friction points were. And at a ballpark, yes. Ken, if you've been to a stadium, one of the things that happens is you get nickel and dimed. All of a yes. sudden, you pay $5 for a burger, <clears throat> $6 for this, $4 yeah. for this. And so what we decided going into this is we're going to create the best experience with all the tickets, all you can eat. Every ticket <clears throat> includes all your food, all your soda, everything for $15. And all night. Oh, wow. And so we eliminated that. So we didn't ask because if you ask the customers, I guarantee they would say, no, no, I don't want them. I'll buy what I want. You know, I'll just I'll buy whatever I want there. But then they leave yeah. spending a lot more money and frustrated. So we eliminated. Sure. We didn't ask them. And then we just kept that, going. Did, how did you make any money, though? <laughs> <laughs> we figured out that later. I think part of your when you just started writing books, you do and then you learn, right? That's uh, right. Yeah, because for 15 bucks, they could eat up your profit the whole night. But, you know, it didn't happen. And getting into the model, not everyone can eat three, four, five burgers, but they're having a great yes. experience. So we yeah. envisioned it from the beginning to when they leave. And we realized that many people, baseball is long, slow, and boring. How do you make it more exciting yes. and have dancing players? And it's a lot because of your raving fans concept and the Johnny the Bagger. We talk to everyone on our staff. What station? What can you do? I mean, we have the players deliver roses to little girls in the crowd in the middle of the game. And it's just all yeah. those type of things inspired by you. Yeah. So sure. my question is, I, I love stories and other examples. Are there other ones from all the companies that you've worked with that are like, wow, they're really putting into play some of these amazing customer experiences that you've seen? Obviously, you've got Southwest and what they're doing. But have you seen any others or maybe that you're doing <clears throat> with your company? Well, I think that what you really need to do is make sure that everybody understands it, you know. And so when we brought raving fans into our company... One of the things we said is with each department, why don't you, if you're going to believe in raving fans, is name your department based on what you do. So you walk in our front door and the receptionist, it has a sign as directors of first impressions because that's their job, you know. In our shipping department, they call themselves fulfillment because their job is to fulfill the promises that the sales folks. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're really key is that you have to first have the vision of the thing, but then you involve people on how they can kind of implement it and all. We did that with the San Diego Padres, you know, and they're considered one of the 
best customer service stadiums. You know, we went down and we built a whole vision down there. And you'll see on the walls and down there, they have their four values, you know, in a form of a baseball. Their first value, of course, is safety because mm-hmm. of the business that they're in. Mm-hmm. And then they talk about caring for the customer and all these kinds of things. And it, and it really just makes a difference. And you get people excited about it, but you got to make sure that it, it continues mm-hmm. as the management changes. And it's kind of hard. You know, one of the things I've often said is that I think companies make a mistake bringing an outsider in to take over the presidency and all. Because number one, they don't know and love your people. And number two, they often have their ego and they want to make changes right away to show where an insider can know what you're doing and how can they continue that movement there. So it's really, we made a mistake a couple of times and brought some outsiders into our company and they were a disaster. And now our president, Howard Farfell, he was with us 10 years before we made a president. He, he headed up our marketing department and then he headed up our sales department and then we made him president. And so he can continue the whole philosophy that we have. I met Howard at the customer service revolution and some of you and your daughter and it was obvious how much they care about what you're doing. And I think that's such a good point. Everyone always talks about hiring and we work so hard <clears throat> on interns. So we have interns yes. that start with us that learn the culture while they're in college. And I'll tell you, yes. they bleed the fans first way. They're in it. And yes. we call our biggest fans are actually our own people. And we, oh, be- for sure, we, yes. we believe in loving our employees yes. even more than our customers. Yes. And I think that's yeah. a really good transition because the whale done concept, again, so simple, a book that made a big impact. The recognition in just the world right now, I feel like is so yes. down from what it should be. And the simple concept, if you could share how Whale Done came about, because that's made an unbelievable impact on our team. Well, it's it's really interesting with Whale Done. And let me just back up one yeah. thing uh, before. But Gun Ho, again, I did with Sheldon Bowles, yeah. you know, and because what happened is people would say, we're really excited about raving fans and all that kind of thing. But how do you create raving fans in an organization where they're not into that and the top management isn't into that, you know. And so the first aspect of Gun Ho is a visionary one, you know. It's a fun story about this gal that takes over this company. It's her first management job, and and she goes in, and she finds out they're not performing very well, you know, except one department, and they're really doing well. Her aides say, well, no, that's being run by this Indian. He's a troublemaker, you know, Andy Longclaw, you know. Yep. And so after the first day, she's kind of discouraged, and she walks across this bridge of, of stream by their place to go sit on a bench and just think, what am I going to do? This place is a mess. And all of a sudden, this guy comes walking up, and he said, do you mind if I sit? And she looks up, and he looks like a Native American, but he doesn't look very happy. And she said, what's your problem? He said, well, I work over there. And he said, I understand that I'm going to be fired by the new manager. And she looks at him and she says, why would I do that? He heard that she was a wicked witch to the West. <laughs> and she said, well, why would I do that? I'm the wicked witch to the West. And I've heard that you, you must be Annie Longclaw. You're the only one running this place. Well, what's your secret? He said, you really want to know? And so he goes and starts to teach her. And he said, why don't we meet about, you know, late afternoon tomorrow and I'll take you out and teach you the first secret. And he takes her out to the forest area where his grandfather had a cabin that he gave him. And he says, 
I'm going to sit over here in the hammock and take a nap, but watch the squirrels. She said, I thought you were going to teach me about gun ho and all. <laughs> you know, watch the squirrels, you yeah. know. He said, watch the squirrels. And so he wakes up and he said, what did you see? She said, well, they're amazing. If we could get people to work as hard as they do, we would make a difference. And he said, what else did you notice? She said, well, they help each other. They're storing food so they can help each other. So that's the spirit of the squirrel, which is having worthwhile work. So she first learns that. And it's really a powerful thing for her to learn. And then he says, you got to learn eventually the second secret, which is the way of the beaver. He takes her one morning out to this stream after it's been a big rain and the beaver's dam. Then he said, look at the beavers. Who do you think is the leader? She said, I can't tell. They doesn't seem to be any leader. He said, you're right, because everybody's the leader. Mm -hmm. And if somebody is working on one part of the dam and they need help, people go over and help them. And the way of the beaver is everyone should be yeah. taking a leadership role, mm. you know. And then finally, his last secret he takes to show her the birds. What kind of birds were they? I forget. Were pigeons yeah, or yeah. something. He goes down to watch the seagulls fly. And he said, what do you notice about them? And she said, well, they seem to fly in a V. And he said, yeah, everybody knows about that. But he said, what do you notice about them? She said, well, they make a lot of noise. Mm. And he says, where's most of the noise coming from? And she stopped. She said, well, it's interesting. It seems to be coming from the back of the V. And she says, yes, because they're cheering on the people up front because they're cutting the wind. And that's where the hard work is, you know. And so, again, it was a great parable story, but it really is key. If you really want to know, you need to have a vision, mm. you know, for people and you have to create an environment where you empower people to be leaders. And then what do you need to do? You need to recognize them. You know, and of all the things, Jesse, I've taught over the years, if somebody said to me, Blanchard, I'm going to take everything away. But one thing, what would you hold on to? The second secret of the one minute manager, which is about one minute praising, mm. which is wandering around and catching people doing things right and encouraging them and all. And, you know, and I know you want to eventually have everybody to be self-motivated. But I think, boy, in the beginning, if they know you're out of your office and you're trying to catch people doing things right, what a difference it makes. Oh, 100%. Well, I'll never forget when a young employee we had, our director of operations, we were literally having a huge concert at the stadium. And he did unbelievable. I mean, we had to service 5,000 people, feed them, take care of them. And at the end of each year, we ask our employees, what was their favorite moment of the past year? And Jonathan came to me. And said, Jesse, after that concert, when you put your hand on my shoulder and said, I'm proud of you, Jonathan. You did amazing tonight. I'm so glad to have you a part of this team. He goes, I'll never forget that. Yes. I don't even remember it. It was so simple and such a little gesture. Yes. But that means For so sure. much. And I think uh, that's why that one minute praise. And, you know, as you were sharing, one thing that really came to me, Ken, is that you've been able to have a vision for the perfect experience for everything, and you simplify it. Like literally gung-ho. Yeah. I don't know how you came up with yeah. all those concepts, but you're like, if I'm going to teach how to build a great organization, I got to have a vision here and then simplify it so people learn from it. And I think uh, yes. not many people have a vision for every part of their life. And it seems like you have a vision <clears throat> for every book and everything that you're doing. Yeah. Well, as I've kind of implied, remember, I've written over 60 books and my mother used to say, why don't you write a book by yourself? Because I've only really written two books by myself. One on golf. So many people helped my golf game. I didn't know who to write it with. And the second is my spiritual journey. Mm. But again, I wrote Gun Ho with Sheldon Bowles. He's one of the most creative people I, 
I ever met. And so we came up with the whole story and all that kind of thing on that, because what is really interesting is how do you create a story about it? I mean, when I met Colleen Barrett from Southwest and I said, we got to write about what you're doing and how can we get it in a way that really hooks people and all that kind of thing. And that's really the, the whole thing. So I love to learn from other people and take what they're excited about and see if I can simplify it and make it available to everybody. I just finished two of the biggest projects I've ever worked on. One was called Servant Leadership in Action. And I got 44 people to contribute short articles. Most reading books, the articles are too long. And I got people like Marshall Goldsmith and Francis Hasselbaum who added up the Girl Scouts and Lori Beth Jones and Patrick Lencioni and just all kinds of John Gordon and, you know, all these guys and gals that were just amazing. And plus people who have implemented, like Jimmy Blanchard, who was president of Synovus, you know, for 30 years, and they won the best company to work for from Fortune so often they asked him to stop applying. So they made an all-star list, you know, but he was implementing servant leadership. Gary Ridge, president of WD-40, has built that place up from two or three hundred million to two billion just implementing yeah. servant leadership concepts, you know? Well, it sounds like the lesson so, here, as I'm trying to kind of work through this, it's like you have known what your strength is and to yes. tell stories, to simplify it, and you find and the stories that you want to share together. It's like you're working together with people, but you got to understand what your right. greatest strength is. So I'm looking at myself and these people out here that want to make an impact. What can we take from your journey in the sense of, I've written 60 books, but you just mentioned only two really solely by yourself. What can we take from that? Well, I think what you can take from that is you're only as good as the people around you. One of our favorite sayings is that none of us is as smart as all of us. And where I've found companies and problems is when the CEO and other people think all the brains are at the top of the organization and they just forget that the people there, God, they're the closest to the customer. They know. And so in servant leadership, there's two parts of it. One is vision and direction and goals. You know, you need to set that vision. And that's got to come from the hierarchy. It doesn't mean you don't involve people, but it's it's a responsibility of the hierarchy. And that's the leadership part of servant leadership. And then once that's done, now what you do is philosophically turn that pyramid upside down so that as the top manager, you're at the bottom and the customer contact people are at the top. And this is the servant part of servant leadership. And your job is to serve everybody there. You know, I mean, Robert Greenleaf used to say years ago that the great leaders serve first and lead second. Mm -hmm. So that's really what you've all tried, you and your wife have done. You had a vision, but then you keep on going to your people and saying, you really are the boss. You're the ones that deal with our customers. You're the one taking flowers to the kids and and all that kind of thing. And they just love that because it makes sense. And I'm working on a book now called Duh, uh, <laughs> which simple. is why isn't common sense common practice, you know, because what you're mm. doing is that's common sense mm. and why it isn't common practice. It's so crazy, you know. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I've been impressed just by how much it seems like you are still obsessed with learning as you are about teaching. Yes, it's really exciting. We just finished the second edition of our book, Leading at a Higher Level, with the 25 of our consulting partners and colleagues, you know, which says all the ways that we try to implement servant leadership. Servant leadership in action really is the mindset, you know, it tells why you should be thinking this way. 
And leading at a higher level is really the skill set. What do you need to do? And we have four sections of that. The first one is to have the right vision and target. Mm -hmm. And then the second is to treat your people right, Mm -hmm. you know, because the best companies like yours realize your number one customer is your people. If you take care of your people, empower them, love on them, then they go out of their way to take care of the second most important customer, the people who use your products and services. Then they become raving fans. And that takes care of the bottom line and the profit part of the game. And so it it's really is powerful. And so the servant leadership in action is the mindset. And then we move to the skill set. So it's vision and direction. Then take care of your people. Take care of your customers. And then the last one is have the right kind of leadership, which is servant leadership. Yeah. It's so amazing just simplifying that to people. It's the vision of where you want to go. Take care of your people. Yeah. Take care of your customers. You know, And then yeah. and make sure you have the right people in place. And it's just... That's that, right. that should be every single <clears throat> book on leadership, on experience should be those three. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And I'm going to give you an opportunity, Ken, now, because before we finish with our last few questions, I'm going to flip the script. All right. We do this every show. Yes. You are now the host of Business Done Differently. And you could ask me one question. Well, where did you and your wife get the insight besides reading books? I mean, to really do what you're doing, you guys must be learners <laughs> and all. But what was the motivation for you all? What got you to do this? Because you're a perfect example of servant leadership in action oh, and thank you. all the things we talk about. Thank you. I mean, I don't share it enough, but I think being a sponge, but a lot of times you have to be forced into that. Sometimes you have to create your own friction or built friction. So when I first started at 23 years old with a team out of Gastonia, there was only $268 in the bank account and there were only 200 fans coming to the games and uh, the team had lost over $100,000 a year and we had no options. And so I couldn't pay myself. So I literally had to, I just started reading and your books were one of the first on the list. I started reading everything about marketing and customer experience. And then from there, I believe in being a sponge, not just in your own industry, but getting so far out of it. We go to conferences like customer service revolution and cruise ships. We don't go to baseball conferences. We learn from the others. So we had to be a sponge or we wanted to be successful. And and I mentioned earlier, Ken, I think you got to do and then learn. I mean, you would have never known if you didn't put your first book out there. You would have never That's known right. the impact yeah. you could have. Yeah. So we try crazy things at the ballpark every day. Yeah. <laughs> a lot yes. of them don't work, but some do. And that's what it is. So I yeah. appreciate that question. I really do. I really but do. The next big question oh. for you is that Marge and I have been interested in maybe writing a book sometime on couples that work together. Oh, geez. Because with the whole concept of marriage and divorce and all, you would think that working with your spouse would be a conflict and all. and How have you made it work with your wife? And Marge and I have worked together for over 40 years, and she's good at things that I'm not good at, and I'm good at things that she's not. And we don't get in each other's pond. I don't know. How does that apply to what you did? We had to learn that. In the beginning, this is crazy, Ken. It was literally me and Emily running two teams at once with no other staff members. It was just two people running two teams, and we were doing everything. And it wasn't until we became very clear on what our roles are, what fires us up every day, what we're the best at, and then just be very clear and support it. And now she's very clear on what she does. I'm very clear what I do. And we talk every week. And we actually just had a two-day retreat, my wife and I, before the end of 2018 and said, what are our family goals? What are our personal goals, our business goals? (laughs) And spent two days getting together, which I'm sure you've done with Marty and you've really connected with her. Is your family involved, the kids involved in business now or... Yes, Maverick's less than a year old, 
But uh, <laughs> okay. But he actually, yeah. in a crazy way, he comes to every game. Our fans have got him yellow tuxedos. Yeah. He was our banana oh, baby one game. So uh, yeah. we don't have kids well, that can really be involved, but soon. Well, it's interesting, you know, because our company now is run yes. basically by our daughter, who's the head of marketing yes. you met, yes. our son who heads up working with product development and is a t- one of our top consultants. And then Margie's brother, who was born when she was a freshman at Cornell, there's five kids in the family. He's the youngest. They're four girls, and they were trying for this boy. And so he's 18 years younger, and he's our chairman and CEO of the company. And Howard is the president and COO of the company. But one of the things that really was helpful to us, which is uh, important, is Peter Drucker convinced my son and me one time. He said, nothing good happens by accident. Put some structure on it. And so when Scott and Debbie and Tom joined our company 25 years ago, Scott said, you remember what Drucker said? He said, I think we should hire an outside consultant to work with our family so that we don't mess our family up by running a business, you know? And he had worked for a company where they had had an outside consultant. So we hired this guy, John Eldridge. He was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And so for the 25 years that they've been involved, the five of us have met once a quarter for a whole day with an outside consultant, and nobody's ever missed a meeting. And so if the kids ever had any problems, they would go to the consultant first and talk about it. John asked us in the beginning, he said, Ken, I'm going to ask you, and Margie, I'm going to ask you an important question. Do you want Scott and Debbie and Tom to be our owners regardless of if they work in the business? We said, why do you ask? He said, because one of the problems with family businesses the only way you get to make any money is if you work there and you get daughters who are building, you know, raising families and they couldn't and they don't get any involvement and it causes problems. Mm-hmm. He said, I suggest that the three of them all become owners and they get some money from their ownership. And then if they work in the company, pay them a salary based on what industry would play, pay that position. So like Debbie was for three years in, down in Brazil and she didn't work in the company. But she had her ownership position, and now the five of us are all 20% owners. Oh, wow. Margie and I held on to a veto. I guess they'd <laughs> do something stupid. And now Scott's wife, Madeline, who heads up our coaching, is now a part of the family. And John Eldridge isn't working with us anymore. We have a wonderful woman consultant who works wow. with this uh, Patty Stain, Kane Stain yeah. Stanley. Yeah. But it's communication and making sure that you stay communicating and have somebody who can facilitate that. Uh, Thank you so much for that advice. I mean, that's very helpful. And I think what's great about a family, though, is we try to build a family with our team. And I think a lot of people don't understand. They think uh, teams, businesses are supposed to just not be families. But we believe in it. We think we love like a family. We care like a family. But there can be challenges. So the reality is you have to communicate, have a vision. and so. Well, well, just to tell you our philosophy, what number one is when you hire somebody, the first day they walk in the office and you see them, if you don't feel a chemical difference in your body because you're excited to see them, why did you hire them? There's enough jerks in the world. We don't need them working for us. And we have a lot of couples in our company. We have one couple who had two or three kids also working in the company. And our president, now his wife works in the company. Our head of product development, who's fabulous, Jay Campbell, now his wife works in the company wow. and all. And so the rule when we have a new employee is says, don't talk 
down about anybody else because they might be related. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And so uh, it, it really is. Margie, at our age, you know, people say, why do you keep on going to the office every day? She says, because everybody I love is there and I don't have to invite them. <laughs> they just show Fam- up. <laughs> family, family and friends, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. So that's, yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. I do want to finish. I don't want to time. I want to finish with a quick final four here. All right. Yeah. I'm fascinated by moments, the moments you create, how you make people feel. And I'm intrigued about you. If there's one magic moment that stands out in your life, first comes to you, what was it? Well, in terms of who I am? Yeah, just something that really, I mean, you've focused yeah, well, so hard. T- yeah. t- two things. One yeah. is my mother yeah. said to me, Ken, there's a pearl of goodness in every human being. God didn't make any junk. Dig for it. And then my father retired as an admiral in the Navy. And when I was elected president in seventh grade in junior high school, I came home all pumped up. And I said, Dad, I'm president of my class. And he said, Ken, now your leadership training begins. Now that you're president, don't ever use your position because great leaders are great because people trust and respect them, not because they have a power. And those two things were just major incidents in my life that gave me a philosophy. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. All right, another one here. If you were to give advice to someone to stand out in business and in life, what would you tell them? I would tell them what we mentioned earlier, that none of us is as smart as all of us. Don't think that all the brains are in your office. You're only as good as the people that you gather around you. Mm. Surround yourself with amazing people. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And uh, you already gave great advice from your parents. I'll skip that one and go to finally. Ken, how do you want to be remembered? Well, I'd like to be remembered. My mission statement is to be a loving teacher and example of simple truths that helps myself and others to awaken to the presence of God in our lives so that we realize we're here to serve, not to be served. And I'd like to remember, when I talk about God, I'm not talking about religion. You know, I'm a follower of Jesus, but he didn't come to start a religion. He came to build a relationship. And he said there was two things to remember, which are philosophies of mine. Number one, is you'll be known as my disciples by how you love each other. And so to me, love is an f- amazing word, and we love in each other. And you come into our company, everybody's hugging and everything. And some people say, aren't you afraid of getting you know, accused of sexual harassment or something? I said, God, everybody knows my relationship with Marge. You know, this is just what we do, you know. So that is. And then the second thing he said, Jesus said, which a lot of, quote, Christians forget, He said, judge not, or you shall be judged. And so, you know, it's not my job to judge, you know. I have an inherited granddaughter who's just fabulous, and she's gay, and she has the most wonderful partner. And people say, why don't you straighten her out? You know, you're, I said, you kidding me? That's above my pay grade. (laughs) My job is to love on them. I mean, why am I sitting around judging Mm. what people are? People are beautiful. It's not my job to tell them, what they need to be do. My job is to love on them and to not judge them. Oh, geez. If we can simplify one thing from this show and everything, it comes down to love. And it's loving your people, yeah, yeah. loving your customers, loving your family, and not judging people. And I think <coughs> that is yeah. one of your simple truths that yeah. you've shared. And I hope everyone gets that yeah. and understands love more today. Love yourself, yeah. love others. And yeah. Ken, I can't yeah. tell you again yeah. how much an impact you made on me. It's been an honor talking with you today. You're going to continue to make an impact on me the people listen to the show and our team and my family. So thank you. Is there anyone else uh, people can learn more? I mean, you're so out there everywhere, but where can people learn more or connect with you or what you're doing? Well, they just can go to 
KenBlanchard.com, yeah. or we now have a thing called KenBlanchardBooks.com awesome. if they want to check out our books. And I also have a ministry called Lead Like Jesus, mm. not to convert people, but to realize when I started to read the Bible later in my life, I laughed because everything I had ever taught about leadership, Jesus did with these 12 you know, incompetent guys he hired. You never would have hired that lot. And, you know, he was a situational leader. He was a one-minute manager. He did it all. And that ministry is all over the world. It's housed in Spartansburg, South Carolina. And I went to school there at Wofford. I went to school at Wofford in Spartanburg. Small world. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a wonderful community. And I just think servant leadership is love in action. Yes. And I think that's what we need to model in life. No, 100%. Ken, thank you so much again for being on the show and sharing your wisdom and love to everyone. Well, good. Great to be with you, Jesse. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to Business Done Differently with Jesse Cole, the Yellow Tux Guy. If you love the show, let Jesse know by leaving a review on iTunes or sending him an email at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. For more information on the guest and topics of this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.